Hey everyone, it's the Kung Fu Genius, a.k.a. Alex Richter. And I just want to thank you all for your tremendous support here for this podcast, both in the audio format and on YouTube. If you're looking for an easy way to support this podcast, please consider joining the Kung Fu Genius Patreon. You can support for as little as $5 a month and get access to episodes a few days early. Higher levels of support will even get additional goodies, exclusive content, and even your name in the description. The baller level of support will give you the opportunity to be Dre for a day and give me a rest from this guy here. A link for the Kung Fu Genie's Patreon page is in the description below. You can also support us by subscribing to the Kung Fu Genius on YouTube, liking this video, and sharing it on your social media platforms. And with that, let's get started. All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube. Lots of gems, lots of Wing Chun sucking in the U.S., lots of, yo, KFG, I heard you're taking the horsey sauce. Let's get to it. He is unstoppable, unbeatable, unbelievable. He's Alex Richter, the Kung Fu genius. And every day, I practice martial arts. Watch out. Word is, I'm a Kung Fu genius. Practice all day like a genius. Practice all day like a genius. Yo, Dre, how you doing, man? Oh, Sifu, I'm good. Good, good, good. good. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, here we are for another episode of the KFG. Yeah. We got another Ask Me Anything episode. So what you got lined up for me? All right. What do I got lined up for you? All right. So our first question is a Patreon question. All right. It uh, is from Voodoo. Voodoo. Yeah. The voodoo that you do. Oh, yeah. All right. Hello, Dre, Mike, and of course, Sifu Alex. What? were the early days of Learning Ting bringing Wing Chun to the U.S. like? I understand there was some sort of intensive training to create teachers quickly. Can you tell us a little more about uh, Learning Ting bringing Wing Chun to the U.S.? All right. Well, hey, that's a great question. Um, obviously, anyone who kind of follows Wing Chun and Learning Ting Wing Chun knows that his, like, his success was mostly in Europe. It's mostly through the EWTO, the European Wing Chun Organization, also had some success in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the U.S. has never kind of matched even a small percentage of the success of Europe. And the reason is exactly what was mentioned in the question, right? Which is basically uh, he tried to come here and teach what he called condensed courses and uh, to build up instructors quickly. And I'm of the opinion that that is, uh, to quote Yoda, and that is why you failed, all right? Um, because uh, the problem is, if there's anything you want to invest more time in, it's your first generation of instructors. They should have more time to, to get a little more seasoned, to learn a little bit more, and to get a little bit more skillful before they go out and teach. And Sifu Learning Ting, now, of course, most of what I know about this time, because I wasn't, obviously, I wasn't around at that time. I wasn't learning Wing Chun at that time. I was a small kid. We're talking about maybe 1979, but really, it's more like in the early 80s. At this point, he had already been teaching Wing Chun in Europe, uh, at least in Germany, and since about 1976. So the EWTO had already been established for about three to four years by the time he tried to come to the States. And I think part of the problem was, well, the problem for the U.S. was that Europe became so successful 
that he kind of didn't really feel the need to worry too much about the U.S. Because uh, if you look at the old photos of Wing Chun in Europe in the early 80s, he was teaching seminars like packed houses. And, and, and you know, in the late 70s, there were like huge seminars, tons of people. So I think Sifu Lengting's motivation for growing the States was not as high as it would otherwise be had he not had such a huge presence in Europe, obviously with the help of Sifu Kanspecht and, and a few other kind of early pioneers of WT over there. Mostly Sifu Kanspecht, though. Uh, so he came up with this thing called condensed courses. Now, I know about it because I've talked to him about it, and he also wrote about it multiple times in his books. The idea of the condensed courses is great in theory, but as we all know, the difference between practice and theory is bigger in practice than in theory. Mm -hmm. His idea was like he would come, let's say, for a week, all right, and he would teach like over seven days, let's say six hours a day or eight hours a day, whatever it was. And he would cram, like, let's say, six months of curriculum jammed into these seven days, all right? So the first form and single-arm chi sao and maybe the second form and applications and theories and just cram all of this stuff in there. Just like taking a can and just cramming everything in there. And then the idea was, after he was gone, after he left, all right, you after seven days, you learned let's say six or seven months worth of training. Your brain is probably fried. And then the idea was you were going to go and you were going to train that stuff like in a Rocky montage, you know, like this. You were going to go and train it and get really, really, really good at it. Uh Because uh, even he would be the first one to say you can't like be a badass in seven days. Uh But he can give you like he can give you the basic ingredients and the basic material. And then you would go and train that stuff for six months okay and then he would come back six months later and then the idea was now you learned all that stuff you had six months of training so your training should catch up to the amount of stuff that you had learned Uh, and then when he does the second condensed course he's now going to teach you the next let's say six months worth of material maybe lots of chum and chisa and stuff like that and those were the ideas behind the condensed courses to really just teach so much and then you go and you train it. Well, the problem is, um, as you know from having trained Wing Chun for a number of years, imagine if I crammed into you in seven days the Siunam Tao form, single arm chi sao, footwork, fighting applications, how to defend a straight punch, roundhouse kick, this move, that move, this move, all over seven days. Yeah. And then I'm like, all right, I'll see you in six months. No. All right. Yeah. No. Right. No. Okay. Because the pr- the problem is, uh, you're the moment the the teacher leaves, you're gonna go. Oh wait. Uh-huh. What, what, what was that one thing? What was that one thing? Right. Or you're gonna go. Okay. Um, I have the movement here, but I'm having a problem applying this movement in this situation because you simply just haven't had the time to actually get good at any of it. And as you know, most of what you learn about techniques, you don't learn because your teacher told you. You learn it through practice, right? Um, So, of course, that was the problem is like, you know, now you've learned all this stuff in theory, but you you have no guidance for the next six months. How do you do it properly? Do you even know if you're training it properly? I mean, how many times... I have students, especially at the beginning levels, they want to go and practice something, but they're not sure if they're practicing it correctly. So then you're worried like, okay, I'm going to do an hour of reps on this thing and something might be wrong. Mm -hmm. And now you've kind of, you know, drilled something in wrongly, right? Because you need guidance. You Mm -hmm. need someone to say, hey, you need to step this way. You need to keep your shoulder back. You need to keep your head this way. You need to punch this way. And you need the coaching 
that would help you get better at those things you learned over the course of seven days. And then the problem was because he would he would basically say, okay, you learned for seven days. You learned all this stuff. He'll come back in six months. And then he'll dump the next six months of training on you. And then he'll throw a certificate at you for having learned the stuff from the previous six months. But the problem was these guys who were going to the condensed courses, they were learning things so fast, they didn't have the same look. When you compare the WT guys in the U.S., uh, to the WT guys in Europe from the same time period, you see a huge difference in the quality. Wow. And by the mid-80s, if you look at some of the videos of the WT guys in Europe, okay, uh, obviously like Sifu Imin Bostep or Sali Avci or any of those guys like from that early period, and you look at how they moved, they were... They, they had good footwork. They had good Wing Chun techniques. They were aggressive. They knew how to apply their Wing Chun. And you look at the same guys in the States because a couple of videos have surfaced recently of like some of the U.S. guys from that time period. Yeah, yeah. And they're just like they just look very wobbly and like they don't really have like good techniques or whatever. And you go, yeah, because in Europe, uh, they, uh, especially at that time in the 80s, they had a very high bar for uh, getting the upper levels and the ranks, like mm -hmm. the tests for student level six test, all right, which is like right in the middle of your, your student program, mm -hmm. is equivalent to what our student level nine test is now. You used to have to go through that at six, all right? Wow. So the idea was that at the student level, student level six was the tough test. Mm -hmm. And you had to be able to really fight and like, you know, they padded you up and you had to be able to essentially uh, be able to beat like a first Dan black belt in karate. Those were the real tough days of Wing Chun in Europe. Wow. And you look at... Um, the guys in the U.S. and they were getting technician levels just by going to seminars for a couple, one or two years, where they would see Sifu Leung Ting for a couple of weeks a year, and suddenly they're traipsing around with technician uniforms. Ugh. Meanwhile, in Europe, if you had a if you had a primary level technician in the '80s in Europe, you were a banger. You were someone, you don't want to mess with that, dude, because that person can step in and punch yeah. and is explosive, can use elbows, and knows how to use chi uh, sao as well, um, even if it was kind of basic. In, in the early days of WT in Europe, they didn't teach the advanced program too easily. It, it took you, admittedly, a very long time to learn buji and wooden dummy. But what they did is they drilled the living piss out of you in the basic stuff with chum Q. So those guys, maybe they didn't, maybe it took them a little while to learn chum Q or something like that, but those guys could really fight. Mm. Um, meanwhile, in the States, they were learning, they were learning everything like candy. And uh, there was also a generation gap. In Europe, everyone was a student, let's say, of Sifu Kanshbe. Mm -hmm. So which meant Sifu Leungting was their Sigong. Yep. In the States, because Sifu Leungting was teaching these condensed courses, he was actually the Sifu of those guys. But on such a, a yes, limited level. Exactly. So the problem is the guys in the U.S. were like, oh, we're direct students of uh, learning tech, <laughs> which, is, which is an arrogance that they still have. Like the few remaining guys from that time period, they still have that to this day. Wow. But meanwhile, they didn't even train. You, you cannot even compare their training to what the guys in Europe were doing. Uh -huh. All right? I mean, there was a reason why when there was a conflict with William Cheung in the 80s, they didn't send one of the American Wing Chun guys to go fight William Cheung. They, they sent Emin Bostepe, yeah. right? So there was like a huge cavernous gap in terms of the quality. And I think the reason why WT, specifically the Leungting lineage, didn't really take off in the U.S. the way it did in Europe is two, two main reasons. One, you didn't have someone like Sifu Kanshpecht who was like, who knew how to organize it and build it and was like a reliable person. You had a bunch of hobbyists, right? I remember like if, 
in one of Sifu Lengting's old books, in Dynamic Wing Chun, he has a, a seminar photos mm. from all, all his seminars all over the world. And when you would see the European seminars, they were always like huge. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the European seminars had like a full uniform on. There was usually Siva Lengting would sit in the middle and there was some technician next to him and then a bunch of students wearing the, the unit. It was like all very legit. organized and very legit, right? And I remember in <laughs> he had one photo, it's still in his Dynamic Wing Chun book, of a seminar that he taught in the U.S., and there were like maybe five people there. And only the assistant had a technician uniform on. Uh -huh. And everyone else who was participating was wearing like jeans or whatever. And I remember there was one dude in one of the photos who had uh, a T-shirt on that said, uh, property of the nut factory. Okay? <laughs> All right? And so if you want to know the difference between the trajectory of WT in Europe versus the trajectory of the WT in the U.S., yeah. You need only look at that one photo and compare it to the, a photo, a group photo of the same time in Europe and realize that the guys in Europe at that time in the 80s were very serious about Wing Chun. They really trained really hard and, and they, they were really super into it. And these were tough dudes and they, and, and, and they really went for it. The guys in the U.S. were just kind of hobbyists. Uh, they did Wing Chun because oh, Bruce Lee did Wing Chun and all this was kind of fun. And you had a very different caliber of people. Uh, when you compare the two. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. never really quite got over that because that was the foundation from which Wing Chun in the U.S. was built compared to Europe, all right? Uh, and I think the results are in in terms of, like, WT is not a huge brand of Wing Chun within the U.S. In the US and yeah. I think that has something to do with it. So that I have a question sense. for you. Oh, here we go. Where can I get that T-shirt? Property of the Nut Factory. <laughs> oh, Yeah. I don't know. It, it, I, if I recall, uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to find the, the Dynamic Wing Chun book. It was like, it was, first of all, it was in the 80s. So it was a very 80s style shirt. It's like, it was like a regular t-shirt. The letters are almost like, they look like stick-on letters, right? In that 80s style, right? So it wasn't like a, even a cool design. And I go like, there you go. Yeah, you look at like, for example, a, a, a photo from Germany or from Kiel in uh, Kiel, Germany in the late 70s. And it's like, oh, these people, everyone's in a uniform. Everyone's super serious. And you look at the guys in the U.S. and you go, this is a clown show. Uh -huh. Now, of course, there were a couple guys in the U.S. that were obviously very serious about it. Of course. But the problem is they had no support team to get better. There wasn't enough. Yeah. Right? There wasn't enough. And so you had, a, you had a few guys from the early time period that I think were very serious about Wing Chun. So there are exceptions to that. Not everyone who learned in the U.S. there was like a total clown. Yeah. But unfortunately, some of the people who were put in positions of power were clowns and still are. So. Sucks for the serious guys in the U.S. because it's like they've got the cards stacked against them. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's why it never really bloomed. So anyway. Wow. So what else you got? Well, also Voodoo had a little PS on that. He okay. says, uh, I wonder if uh, Dryson will ask him some absurd hypothetical in this episode. Uh, so he's asking about Dryson. Yeah. We haven't had Dryson in a little while. And I think, I don't know, you're the one that picks the questions. Is yeah, Dryson not I, in there or what? I'm tired of people being on my case about this is something that I should, you know, get to the bottom of. Or right. have all the answers to. Right, right, right. Relax. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. If Dreyson asks a question, he asks a question. If he yeah. doesn't ask a question, whatever. Yeah. We can't force it. Yeah. Acceptance, right? you know, yeah. flow. It's like Gen genius can't be maybe. forced. Maybe. Who All knows? Right, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to check with Dreyson. shocker if it's a hypothetical. Shocker. We're going to have to check with him. All right. Cool. So uh, what else we got? What else we got? Okay. So this question comes from Topher. Uh-huh. Oh, All another right. Patreon. Yeah. We got two Patreon questions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Our Patreon supporters always get... You know, first dibs priority, on questions yeah. and priority for, for the podcast. Yeah. All right. So Topher says, question for future AMA. 
For those of us who've listened for a long time, we've heard a number of uh, the issue you've had with Sifu Lerngting over the years. Mm. I know you've also mentioned some of the good times as well. Uh, what are some of your favorite memories of the good times training with them? Okay. Well, Is that the whole question? Almost. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was it like getting personal training from him on things like the wooden dummy and the long pole? Thank you, Sifu Alex, and all my Kung Fu genius peeps. All right. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, Topher is a longtime supporter. He was actually a supporter of us back in the Dudes of Kung Fu days mm -hmm. with uh, Big Sean and I. We had a little Patreon back then as well. And, uh, yeah, Topher also came to my ITC last year as well. Mm. And he's coming this year as well. Nice. Um, yeah, he's that other Wing Chun guy uh -huh. on Instagram, yeah. so you guys can give him a follow. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I don't talk too much about, like, my time learning with Sifu Leung Tang, which was between 2002 to 2011 uh, when I was teaching here under the IWTA. And I, I mentioned some, you know, obviously – this politics and things like that uh, were had something to do with the reason why I left, um, and also his personality. He he, he can be a bit rough around the edges sometimes. Mm. But I have uh, I have some funny stories and obviously some fond memories. I mean, I, it wasn't all bad or anything like that. And I, I certainly hope that that's not the impression that I give people. Uh, it's just that when, when we talk about some of the controversies or some of the issues that we have that generally makes for more interesting podcasts than all the hand-holding and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But I do have a couple, couple stories about him that I think are um, maybe interesting to our, our listeners. So Siva awesome. um, Ting. Can be a kind of bit, can be a bit of a difficult person, but he's also childish in a good way. All right, not just childish in a bad way. Mm -hmm. I remember um, many years ago uh, he was teaching a seminar, and we went down to South Street Seaport. They had that. Uh, do you remember that bodies exhibit where you could see inside yes. the bodies or whatever? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, it was pretty funny because uh, when that bodies exhibit was around. Uh, they had ads for it all over the city, uh -huh. like in Times Square, on the on the taxis everywhere. And while Sifu Langting was in town, the, the 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 difficult thing for me is when he would come to town. I uh, you know he would teach either like a three day seminar, and there was a time period where he actually taught five day seminars at City Wing Chun. Um, but he would be in New York, let's say for a week, and I would have to entertain him every day, mm -hmm. not just like during the seminar, but after the seminar take him out to eat, go somewhere. And it's not easy to know like what to do with like a Chinese Kung Fu instructor in your free time. Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, obviously he's, he's my teacher. So there's a level of respect there. Um, but I also am responsible for making sure he's like not bored and he has something to do. Yeah. Right. Um, because otherwise he's just going to sit in his hotel room. Uh -huh. And I know that he would complain uh, about like when he was in Europe that he would just be in a hotel room and then he would be bussed to teach the seminar. And after the seminar, he'd be kind of put back in his hotel room. And uh, there may be reasons for that, but he kind of mm -hmm. had to, he kind of had the feeling like he'd never really had a chance to do anything. So at least when he was here in the States, he could go out. I could take him to restaurants. We can go different places. Right. Yeah. But it was always, I would always be nervous. Cause it's like, well, I mean, what do you do? I don't like the, the stuff I'm into at my age might not be interesting for him at all. And I remember I kept seeing those signs for that bodies exhibit. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> the first day I go, uh, Gong, do, do, do you want to see that bodies display? It's kind of interesting. And he was like, oh, he was like, oh, no, that looks that looks terrible. I don't want to see that. That looks disgusting. Right. And I'm like, oh, OK. All right. So another thing I can't do with him. Right. And then like by the second day, he goes, hey, aren't you going to take me to that bodies exhibit? Uh. <laughs> right. Because that's also like very typical of him. Right. Uh, and I was like, oh, OK, fine. So we um, 
we went uh, we went there. I brought my student Mike Yan, who's uh-huh. a he's now a, a big Hollywood stuntman, did Avengers Endgame and all sorts of stuff like that. And we went down there. We had a really good time. Um, but afterwards, they had those little carts outside where they sell. You know, there's a kind of street vendors Souvenir where they sell different stuff. souvenir stuff, yeah. right? And there was one guy who sold these wooden toads. And okay. the and the toad came with like a piece of wood that goes in its mouth. And you you pull that piece of wood out and then you basically rub this little stick on its um on the back of the toad. And when you do it, it makes a sound like a toad. Like I mean oh, whatever wow. like the yeah, sound a toad yeah. makes, right? So you just have to kind of like rub this stick on its like yeah, crack. But it like sound that. it sounds like, right? Yeah. And he was like, oh, oh, my son. His son was quite young at that time. He's like, oh, my son is going to love this, mm-hmm. right? And then he goes, okay, let's let's take a look. And, of course, like the vendor has – they're all made of wood, and they're all a little bit different because mm-hmm. they're handmade. And so he it, he takes one, and he plays it, and he's like, okay, what do you think about this one, right? Okay. And he puts it down. <laughs> he grabs the other one. Okay. Okay, what do you think about this one? Does it sound more real? Boom. And then he tested every single one. Right? Are you serious? Like a psychopath, all right? <laughs> like like to find the one that was the most authentic. And first of all, they all kind of sound the same, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like a pretty standardized thing, right? So after what felt like three hours, uh-huh. he finally makes a decision on, on buying one. So he buys one, and then we have to take subway back to here to Midtown because yeah. we were down by South Street Seaport. Yeah. And it was like a, it was like a Sunday, and you know when you whenever you're like way down downtown is like dead. I know. You know, it's yeah. really like financial district, uh-huh. that whole area there. Like for people who see New York, New York is a city that never sleeps, except the financial district on a mm-hmm. Sunday. Mm-hmm. If you ever go down there, you feel like you're in the movie I Am Legend. It's a ghost town. Yeah. It's a ghost town, yeah, even yeah. in non-pandemic times. Yeah. So like you would just go there on a Sunday, uh-huh. and you'd be like, "This is Manhattan. It's dead down here, yeah. right?" Um, whereas if you were in any other, if you're in the East Village on a Sunday, it's mm-hmm. bu- hustling and bustling but the financial district is just like you'd see tumbleweeds blowing through there right so we um we get on the subway and it was like there was only like three other people in the subway car Uh like and not because there was like a smelly dude on the train yeah but it was just like there's no like no one downtown right and he sees like he looks at the two other people sitting there and then he looks at me and he goes hey and he pulls out the wooden toad (laughs) And he kind of hides it under his jacket, uh-huh. and he starts, and he he, he <laughs> and then because the train was mostly empty, yeah. it almost sounded like it was echoing in there, and you heard it, and it sounded like there was a frog inside the the train. Wow! And and he was hiding, and he did it like, <laughs> and the other like the other two or three people in the train like they looked up and they're like, is that is that a frog? What was that? Yeah. And and he's there and he's hiding it. And mind you, he's like, I mean, he's like in his late 50s, 60s at this okay. point, right? <laughs> and like, and he sees, they're, they're like looking around and looking at each other and everyone's kind of looking like, is there a frog in here? Yeah. And he starts like, he can't help, he's like he's trying to stop from cracking up. Oh, wow. And like, it was the funniest thing in the world for him, right? And he just kept doing it and he was like, <laughs> looking at me, trying not to laugh, <laughs> uh, causing all this confusion on the subway train. And, and I just thought like, Wow. Um, he definitely has a reputation for being a very difficult person, and he can be, uh, he can be a bit um, thorny, I guess, is the way to describe him. But there's definitely part of him that's like super, super childish, and I can appreciate that. I know? imagine it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like you know, it's, it's your sigong, right? But at the same time, like this is 
but he's also secretly a 12-year-old sometimes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that um, that is kind of part of, you know, what what's important, especially as you get older. It's like you, you still got oh, yeah. to keep in contact with that mm-hmm. part of you, right? I think, I think there's no part uh, – I, I think it's – the day you don't find like a fart joke funny as an adult, I think, uh, or just farts in general or something ridiculous, I think that's the that's the day you start, start to die. Start to the decline. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the decline right there when you can't laugh at just the absurd. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah, th- so that that's always a memory that I thought was was kind of funny. Um, and with the. Uh, with the learning, I mean, whenever we were practicing Wing Chun, that was always a very stressful time because mm-hmm. he can be he can be a little stressful when you're learning from him, mm-hmm. because he's not the he's not the teacher who he doesn't really compliment you. It's like if you do something okay, he just won't say anything. Mm-hmm. If you mess something up, he'll tell you what an idiot you are. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's it's like the the less he says, the more you're like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm doing, doing kind of fine, right? right? So uh, I wrote about this story in my wooden dummy book but uh-huh. I'll tell it here so for those of you who have my wooden dummy book I apologize and if you don't have my wooden dummy book it's available at cdwt.com and it's awesome it all right so um yeah the photographer was pretty good too and we should get him on the podcast at some point not bad and man. also yeah, the proofreader absolutely. yeah proofreader. those guys are great we those guys those are great guys. those guys yeah. are right. all right so um uh he he could be kind of funny um so one night uh, I did a private lesson with him uh, late at night. It was like we had gone out to dinner and I think it was like one of the last nights he was going to be in New York. Uh-huh. So I, I wanted to get a couple of private lessons in with him before he left. I wanted him to come check my wooden dummy form. This is a number of years ago. And so I think we ate at Ruby Tuesdays right around the uh-huh. corner. And then uh, after that, we came back to the school late at night. Now, okay. normally when he teaches Wing Chun, he teaches Wing Chun in his like his uniform and he uses like the soft style Chinese slippers. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time it was so late. He just like kept his normal clothes on and he just watched me. Uh, uh he was going to correct my wooden dummy form and I think teach me some wooden dummy cheese hour or something like that. And, um, Sifu Carson Lau, who's another instructor of mine, uh, Sifu Carson Lau, uh, also learned in Hong Kong. And he, the, my two big influences, um, after my time in Europe was Sifu Ting and Sifu Carson Lau. And there were some differences between Sifu Carson Lau and Sifu Ting in terms of the way that they did some minor stuff, but still differences. Because uh, Sifu Carson Lau not only learned from Sifu Ting, but also learned from his Sifu, obviously, Sifu Cheng Chun Fun, who does things a little bit differently. So there'll be some minor variations in like the wooden dummy and little footwork or something here, something there, or the a way they teach something. But um, these things would often cause confusion among some of my Wing Chun brothers, but I loved this stuff because I would be like, oh, great, Sifu Lao teaches this and he does it because of this and this and Sifu Leung Ting does it this way because of this and this and I would feel that I'd be richer for the experience, but some other people would be like, well, which one is it? And it's like they're not applying their own brain. The beauty is the compare and contrast. Ex- exactly, but people don't want to do that. They just go, oh, but he shows it this way, this is right or wrong. Like, they, they don't, in my opinion, they don't get it. So uh, in the seventh set of the wooden dummy, we have this sub uh, toy, this cross kick mm-hmm. and there's a the way you dismount after you do the cross kick. It, the way Sifu Ting teaches it is like one way. And the way Sifu Carson Lao showed me is another way. Now, I'm normally very good at keeping versions straight, like when I do them. So when I did the wooden dummy with Sifu Lao, he, the arrangement of some palm strikes and a couple little details were different than the way Sifu Ting taught me the wooden dummy. But I would always make it a point, okay, if I'm doing the wooden dummy form for Sifu Ting, 
I'm going to do the form the way he showed it to me because I don't want him to feel like I'm wasting his time doing something else. And when I did it for Sifu Carson Lau, I'd do the version he showed me because yeah. I don't want to go, oh, well, I'm just going to do show the, this version here. And even though I know it's not the one you do, like, I find that would be a bit disrespectful. And also then he's going to correct me and tell me to do it his way. And I already know his way. So why would I waste his time? Just do it his way. And then he can yeah. show me the next thing. Yeah. Right. So normally I keep these versions straight. But on this night, maybe because it was really late. It was after dinner. It was like super late at the school. When I did the seventh set of the dummy, I did the dismount from the cross kick the way Sifu Lau does it, which is different. And the moment right after I did it, I just said, shit. Like in my mind, I just go, damn it. I, I knew I had, oh, I just did it in Sifu Lau's way. Yeah. And this is different from the way Sifu Lau and Ting showed it. I go, I hope he didn't see it. All right? Yeah, of course he, <laughs> he saw, saw it. Of course he, he saw, saw it, right? It. And he goes, hey, why do you do it like that? Uh -huh. All right? He was really pissed off. And I'm like, oh, sorry. I just made a little mistake. And then, um, oddly enough, he blamed it on my Sifu, all right? It was very funny. But it, oftentimes when I made a mistake in the wooden dummy, uh -huh. he would say, oh, you are doing it the way your Sifu does it, right? But what he doesn't realize is I never learned the wooden dummy from my Sifu. <laughs> like, never once, okay? Uh, my Sifu, Sifu Kanspecht in Germany, mm -hmm. I left Germany when I was a primary level technician. I had not l yet learned the wooden dummy, right? Yeah. And... Um, but he and but it didn't matter the mistake, right? I, I could just like put my hand on the dummy. He'd be like, "Oh, that's the way your Sifu does it. You shouldn't do it that." Like, like he would just use that he as an excuse because yeah. he had little nitpicky yeah. issues that he with my Sifu that 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 he didn't like for whatever reason, which has nothing to do with my Sifu's technique. It's just like you know sometimes there's some clashes or whatever, and he'll just say, mm -hmm. "So he'd be like, oh, you're doing it like your Sifu or something like that." It's like I never did the wooden dummy with my Sifu, right? <laughs> um, so then he was like, you should do it like this. And then he he stood in front of the dummy and he kicked it like he did the, the cross kick. Uh -huh. And then he put his foot back the way he wanted me to do it, which is the way he taught me. And I knew that. But he was like a little pissed off. And then so he kicked it. And his um, he was wearing normal shoes. He just kept kicking it. And he marked the wooden dummy right where you do the cross kick. So like, bam. And he was like, bam, like this, bam, like this, bam, like this. And then and then like after he kicked it about 10 times, like, do it like that. Don't do it another way. And then, and I just felt so pissed off because one, I didn't want to agitate him. Mm -hmm. And two, it was like, I know what his version was. I yeah. just like, and it was just like get, getting punished for something. You're like, Ugh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, but as a result, the wooden dummy here on this floor is marked in the exact spot where you're supposed to do that kick. So I always tell my students when you're doing that kick from the seventh set, your foot goes right there. Because that's there. exactly where Steve Lerting's <laughs> foot went when he got pissed off when I made that mistake, right? So um, those are kind of two stories from that time. That's so, awesome. Anyway. All right, what else you got for me? Oh, right. before we go any further, though, um, Dre, you are looking different today. Have you got a haircut? Have you been working out? I was actually wondering the same thing. I got a few of them cut uh, <laughs> Saturday. All right. And um, yeah, yeah, no. I just been um, soaking up uh, moonlight beams, you know? Got and, it. Um, I was going to say, it looks like he's bulking up a little bit. Or yeah, maybe it's just a yeah. shirt. Dre rarely wears a shirt like that. I tell you what, I think the glasses have, uh, you know, kind of grown your vocabulary a little bit as well. You seem a little more erudite today, a little Ooh. more. Well. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's in the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it wasn't just I me. Take them all, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, definitely. Got it. But it, it cleans up really nicely when got you, when it. you got get it back on. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, yeah. 
Excellent. All right, what else right, you got for me? Got? Hey, everyone. It's the Kung Fu Genius, a.k.a. Alex Richter. And if you're listening to us on audio only, I'd appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to it. And of course, if you like what I do here, don't forget to subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius on YouTube and hit that bell for notifications. Are you a fan of Wing Chun Kung Fu? Well, if you listen to me, I assume you are. I got great news for Kung Fu Genius fans. Right now, you can get an all-access one-month free trial subscription to Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Yes, I said free. Go to WC newsstand.com and register in the upper right hand corner fill in your email and password and use the code kfg trial to get your free trial to the issues from 2011 to the current issue that's right all the issues even the one with this guy on the cover my kung fu genius column is in all the new issues as if you need another reason to get this awesome magazine go get your free trial subscription today for all that information check out the description below and with that let's get started okay so let's see so this one's from Paul Clairhout. All right. All right. I was training with some Hawkins Chung students in the park until the pandemic. Sifu Alex, can you interview one of his senior students on your podcast? I think it'd be really interesting. Right. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. That, uh, the problem is, as I said many times, so we get lots of suggestions for me to, like, interview peeps on the podcast, right? And I'm all for it because, like I've told you before, Dre, no, no diss on you. But when we do these AMAs, mm. I don't learn anything <laughs> because or maybe the things that I learn are not positive. All right. <laughs> things that I would rather not know. Right. Um, because uh, obviously when when we're doing the Ask Me Anything episodes, I'm just saying whatever is in my head, yeah. whatever I think I know or don't know or whatever. So uh, this, I'm not really like getting much out of it mm-hmm. besides just kind of like talking about what I think I know or maybe give you some context. Yeah. Uh, but whenever I have an interview, that's a chance for me to like kind of shut up and listen to someone else, it. right? Yeah. Uh, the problem is that those always tank in terms of views, right? Unless it's Matt Polly mm-hmm. or John Little, uh, yeah. it's very clear that the Kung Fu Genius audience does not want me doing interviews, mm-hmm. all right? Because <laughs> I can have a Kung Fu movie star, Bobby Samuels, yeah, yeah. who lived with Sammo Hung, okay? Made movies in Hong Kong. Vincent Lin, who was a freaking villain in one of the biggest Jackie Chan movies. Yes. I can have them on here and people are like, nah, nah, nah. Telling like funny, awesome stories. Yeah. Nah. Talk about Bruce Lee's drug letters. Talk about Quentin Tarantino being a dick about Bruce Lee. (laughs) Okay, Kung Fu Genius listeners, I get it. Yeah. So this is the reason why um, I'm now doing like a separate series within the on the Kung Fu Genius channel. Okay. When I do interviews with people, it's just going to be called Ten Questions, and Mm -hmm. I did the first one with uh, Frank Jang a few weeks ago. Uh, He's a Hong Kong film expert, and those I release on a separate day so that it doesn't conflict with the Monday podcast. Because heaven forbid, you watch two in one day. Yeah, or also that I mess with the very delicate balance of what my Monday listeners want to listen to. Like, don't talk about MMA. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about kung fu movies too much Uh unless they're Bruce Lee movies or Bruce Lee hypotheticals like what if Bruce Lee were alive today what movies would he have made right Um, but like I would do I would love to do like an hour long deep dive into like the feud between Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest that stuff because I would like prepare notes and do like a deep dive on that and maybe do it with someone else who's an expert 
but it just seems like no. But when I do a, a interview or one of those videos separate from the Monday podcast, like I, I put that out on a Thursday, yeah, they actually yeah. seem to do okay because it's like a different audience that mm -hmm. watches those. It's not the Monday audience. Yeah. So I'm going to start doing more interviews, 10 questions with, you know, maybe other Wing Chun Sivu or Jeet Kune Do guys. Um, and then do those things like on a Thursday. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I know Phil Romero, who's a Hawkins Chung student. I yeah. actually taught a joint seminar with him on two occasions. Really super cool dude. I uh, would love to have him on. So maybe something for the 10 questions series in the future. Okay. But in the meantime, I think the Monday podcast is basically going to retain this format. Ask me anything. People write in their questions. I answer them, yeah. and it's usually eighty percent about Bruce Lee. Although we've actually managed to avoid Bruce Lee thus far in this episode. So far, so far, so good. Right. You know, so far, so good. That that saying. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's not. Pro you know, notice it's not proper English. So it's far, so not. good. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Because it's actually from Chinese. All right. Oh, yeah? There are a number of phrases yeah. uh, that have from Chinese that have been adopted into English, supposedly uh -huh. from the times when the Chinese were working on the railroads. Uh -huh. And uh, there was a communication problem between Chinese and English speakers. Yeah. So they created essentially Chinese uh, phrases using English words. Okay. And that's where things like long time no see come from. Oh, really? All right. Long time no see in Chinese. Holoi mokin. Okay. All right. That's the same exact thing, just using English words, all right? Uh, monkey see, monkey do. Yeah, yeah. All right? No can do. Have a look-see. These are all, these are all Chinese yeah. phrases in English. Um, and so no can do being, being one of them. So, uh, yeah. So, any, anyway. I everyone's can't go a, for that. No, but no the wording do. mix. I can resist it. You just gave me a is fantastic it, Hall and Oates reference. I was going to say, you, you just made a Hall and Oates reference. I absolutely. Further did. alienating our audience, all right? <laughs> or bringing more in. Yeah, maybe for our demographic. People, they get excited when I, we talk about Hall and Oates. Yeah, I can't go for all right? that. You're definitely Oates. Okay, let's go. <laughs> all right. So this one's from Joe. Joe. All right, just Joe. Joe. All right, here we go. And no mo after that. All right. <laughs> All right. That was 100% an Arnold accent. And uh, a good yes. one at that. Uh, yes. L-M-A-O. Uh, yeah. A few episodes ago, I did my Arnold yeah. accent, right? Oddly, look, I'm half German. I lived in Germany for three years. Mm -hmm. I can speak German. I can't really do a German accent. My father has a German accent, uh -huh. okay? Yeah. My father's name is Manfred, for Christ's sakes. Pretty it doesn't German. get more German than that, right? You've met my dad. Oh, yeah. He's... As German as hell, <laughs> all right? He's as German as... He refuses to drive a car that's not German, okay? Uh -huh, yeah. That's my dad, yeah. right? Uh, I love my dad to death. He's, and he's like as German as they come in the best way uh -huh. possible. If if you hold a gun to my head, I can, I can sustain a German accent for about 10 seconds, mm -hmm. and it always then turns into an Austrian accent, yeah. which I just find <laughs> vastly more entertaining. And so my... Austrian accent in English is generally way better than my German one. And so, which means that my Arnold Arnold's, accent, yeah. yeah. Uh, and obviously, there's that famous line from um, Total Recall oh, See yeah. you at the party, Richter. <laughs> All right, which is great because that's my name. Oh, yeah. Um, my, good, uh, my good friend Christian Maricic, who uh, lives in Vienna, um, I happened to be kind of going through Europe at that time of my birthday, a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And he surprised me. And took me to the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum That's in like South Austria, yeah. uh, which was like the house that he was born in and grew up in. 
and he gave me as a gift a T-shirt, which I've actually worn on the podcast uh-huh. uh, uh, a couple times, yeah. which is Arnold Schwarzenegger's face, and it says, see you at the party, Richter, right? Which is such a great line. It's a great line because he's holding a dude, two, ar- two severed arms <laughs> in his hand when he says that, all right? How cool, I mean, just think about it, right? Obviously, 80s action movies are uh-huh. over the top, right? Um, but just think about if Arnold Schwarzenegger's various characters were actual real people, what would be the psychological makeup of someone who would be in a life and death battle on an elevator? Uh-huh. The dude that he's holding on to gets his arms ripped off. Mm-hmm. You hold on to both arms and still have the mental wherewithal to, ha- to come up with a, a, with quick, a, f- one. a quick one, all right, <laughs> while holding two severed arms. I mean, I think we're talking, this would be like the highest level of psychopath, but it would have to be, it would have to be a combination of just like a, an absolute brilliant, like the person would have to have an extremely high IQ to come oh, up yeah. with something so quickly, oh, yeah. but there would have to be some like psychopathology going on in there uh-huh. to be able to hold two severed arms. <laughs> unaffected. Unaffected. <laughs> and say a funny one and then just like chuck them unceremoniously, right? <laughs> so uh, we don't think about things like that, yeah. right? Like I talked about um, a few episodes ago, like, you know, Way of the Dragon, right? Uh-huh. Tang Long, Bruce yeah. Lee's character. He, he literally commits murder in Italy. Mm-hmm. He kills Chuck Norris mm-hmm. at the Coliseum, right? Yeah. Kill, he breaks his neck and yeah. then puts his gi over him, walks away, and then goes back to Hong Kong. So, like, if you think about it, like, all of these, all of these things are, are problems. Only in Bruce Lee's first two films, which were directed by Lo Wei, mm-hmm. did Bruce Lee get his comeuppance for killing dudes, uh-huh. all right? Because at the end of Big Boss, he murders the Big Boss, among other mm-hmm. people, and he gets arrested at the end. Yep, That's yep. like the final scene, right? Fist of Fury mm-hmm. beats the crap out of all the Japanese dudes yep. and then runs and then gets mm-hmm. shot, shot, runs yeah. into the firing squad, right? He said he wanted that ending because he wanted it to be like the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he wanted to just go out in a blaze of glory, yep. like, you know, kind of Thelma and Louise style, right? Uh, but when he directed his own movie, he had no consequences for murdering a hairy Westerner in the middle of the Coliseum. So is he just going to the airport? Emphasis on Harry. Yeah, by emphasis the way. on Harry, right? Uh, which Chuck Norris, if you've seen his uh, Total Gym commercials uh-huh. like from 20 years ago, that hair magically vanished, right? Yeah. yeah as you pointed out on that episode, like, you know, uh, there would be a patch of hair missing from uh-huh. the chest, right? <laughs> But just imagine the Italian guy who who works at the Coliseum cleaning it up. He's like, oh, my God, there's the, the karate guy. Who killed the karate guy, right? And, like, it would be three steps before they're like, yeah, I think it was that Chinese dude who was busting dudes with nunchucks down there, that Chinese restaurant. But somehow Tang Long strolled back to Hong Kong and went on his merry way, right? After, like, other people got killed there, yeah. too. So, anyway, when people talk about, you know, I like Bruce Lee's movies because they're realistic, uh-huh. I go... How did he murder a dude in the Coliseum and get on a plane and go back to Hong Kong? That's what I want to know. I want to see that sequel. Yeah. So anyway, what else you got for me? Yep. All right. This one's from Pow Pow. Pow Pow. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Please don't replace Dre. Oh, that's right. Because we talked about Maria, my daughter, Mm -hmm. wanting to replace you. No, I don't think we'll ever replace Dre. Okay, that's true. You know what it is? Like those, those... The Kung Fu Genius, obviously, at this point, uh-huh. is an iconic podcast. Yeah. We have tens of viewers on a regular yes. basis. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean... And I make tens of dollars. <laughs> ones of dollars. <laughs> yeah, ones of dollars a month during this podcast, right? Uh, doing this podcast. 
Um, so the last thing you want to do is tinker with the formula. Yeah. Because that would kind of ruin it. Yeah. Like, you ever watch a sitcom and, like, halfway through a season they, like, replace a main character? Mm -hmm. And either they just get someone else or they just get another actor to play that same character and you're like... Three's Company. Three's Company. They did that, right? The Cosby Show. Cosby Show. That's right. And it's not, not quite the, the same. same. All right? You Fresh also Prince. did that on Dukes of Hazard. Do you remember that? What was it? Because uh, it was that they replaced Roscoe? No. Who they replaced? They had replaced the two Duke boys. What? So, okay. Now, I'm not like a... I'm not a TV historian, all right? So because okay, but... anytime I talk about this stuff, someone comes to the YouTube comments, actually, this was the reason. Like, and I go, actually, you can Google it, whereas I'm just saying it right now without doing any research, all right? So shut up, all right? Um, We're not doing a Mandela effect thing. Exactly. Here, yeah. No, no, no. This is, this is legit. Uh, apparently, at least according to my fuzzy memories, okay. the two actors that played the, the, you know, what, Bo and Luke or yeah, what yeah, were their yeah, names, yeah. right? Uh, they were in some kind of contract dispute. I guess they wanted more money because the show was doing really yeah. well. And they were not able to get the, their new contract mm. matched to what they wanted. So there's like a season where they just didn't have them. And they got two other dudes who were their cousins. And basically, they just kind of went on with the same kind of adventures. And like, you know, I don't know, Bo and Luke, I don't know, went to Texas or yeah, something yeah. to go pick cherries <laughs> for, for a season or something <laughs> like that, right? And, uh, and I remember watching that as a kid. Because I was a real little kid when that yeah, came out. Yeah, like, yeah. There were a couple TV shows I just had to watch. Mm -hmm. One was Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. The other one was Knight Rider. Yo, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And uh, I remember that season where I was like, no, it's like wrong. Uh -huh. it's, it's like, th th this is not Dukes of Hazard, yeah. right? I'll tell you a funny story about the Kung Fu Genius and mm. what a child I still am based <laughs> on my childhood. Mm, my parents brought me to Canada when I was very young to visit some family friends up there. Yeah. In the Toronto area, but not actually in Toronto proper, okay. like north of Toronto in the sticks. And when we got up there, they're like living in a, like their family friends like live in a cabin, like way out in the woods, snowmobile and all sorts of cool shit out there. Uh, but there was no Knight Rider in Canada at that time. Oh. And like I watched Knight Rider religiously every uh -huh. week. And I, I had like a freaking temper tantrum. Withdrawals. When, no, when I found out that like I wouldn't be able to watch Knight Rider on like Friday when it came out. Uh. And so uh, that basically explains how I got here to this day. Like, that explains a lot about me. You can do the math on everything yeah. else. And it's funny, in hindsight, you go like, wow, imagine throwing a temper tantrum to not, because you couldn't see an episode of Knight Rider, right? Yeah, yeah. And also when you think about it now, like, you literally can watch any episode of Knight Rider you want. You just go online, it's yeah, somewhere, yeah. right? It's not even a big deal. You can watch them all at once. But back then, it was such a big deal. Like, oh, if yeah. you missed the show, you missed the yep. show. Right, if you didn't see a movie in the movie mm -hmm. theater, they didn't even come out on on VHS until like six months later. And it's not even like those episodes were continuous; like you had to see one episode exactly. to know what happens in the exactly. next. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So no, they were all crazier. disconnected. Yeah. Right. Each episode was a self-contained yeah. story. Occasionally, you would have a two-parter on yeah. Night Rider, but otherwise, like you, there was no canon to the uh -huh. Night Rider story, yeah. right? So yeah. So um, anyway, That's that explains fine. a lot about me. Right. How I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Throwing tantrums. That's going to say, we're going to talk about, like, uh, you know, messing with the format. No, we're not going to replace Dre. The, we, you have to worry when we bring in new characters to freshen it up. Oh, mm. new characters. That's right. Because they did that in the last season of Knight Rider with RC3. But you oh, know, that's right. You I do kind of remember that. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, like, you know, Kit is now suddenly, what's it? Uh, they had the convoluted um, episode where Kit suddenly became a uh, convertible. 
That's right. Really? Yeah. Like they chop, oh, God, they all sorts of terrible yeah, things. Chop, right? chop thing so can well. you imagine, like, we take this well-oiled machine yeah. of having, uh, you know, the, 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 the TBG, that yeah. British guy, yeah. all right? Yeah. The TFG, that fucking guy, guy, all right? And the KFG. And, like, we just changed one of them? Yeah. I mean... You can't do that. Like, yeah. history tells us time and time again, you cannot mess with the formula. Yeah. All right? Do you remember New Coke? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I know, yeah. Can you buy New Coke now? No. no. All right? We would never do that on this podcast. Can you imagine getting, like, some random dude and just calling him Dre and, and imagining that, like, Ridiculous. nothing ever it changed? It would not work Ridiculous. out. There's no such thing as yeah. New Dre. Yeah, there is no New Dre. Yeah. Right? Ridiculous. And the audience would revolt. All right? What, are we going to have New Dryson? Yeah. Oh. All right? Ooh. No, we would never, ever do that. All right? I just want you guys to know we would never do that. Never. Right. Job security. All right. All right, Dre, what else you got for me? Uh, okay. All right. This is from David. One oh one oh seven two three. Okay. Not right. David Henry Huang, man. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. Mm. Take it easy. All right, let's go. All right. So, what is the difference between city Wing Chun and normal Wing Chun? Mm, way more city. What else you got? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. But there's an additional small part to this, which okay. is, I guess, addressed to uh, Dr. Eisen. Dr. Eisen. Yeah, Dr. Eisen. So uh, upon you mean from Doctor Eisen, that jackhole has oh. commented on the podcast before. He keeps I, he yeah. sneaks his way in. I yeah. don't know. He's, he's hey, so how do you say he sneaks sneaky. his way in? You're literally the one that picks the questions. How does he sneak his way in? Like Dreisen sneaks his way in. I don't feel like talking about this right now. It, it's, I'm uncomfortable. No one ever actually saw Dreisen comment, ever. But yet somehow you find Dreisen in the comments. Yeah. I've had people go and look at the comments for so-called Dreisen questions. No one can find them. And now we have Dr. Eisen, okay? Mm -hmm. Haven't seen him there either. Yeah, well, you know. Dr. Eisen. Yeah, Dr. Eisen. Sounds Dr. suspicious. Sounds yeah. very familiar. Yes. Well, should we ask for credentials? Or? All right, well, let's see. All right. Oh, I'm sure let's see what them. the question is from oh, Dr. Yeah. Eisen. Yeah, that's a good point. That's All right, let's point. go. Let's right. go. So, upon examining early photos of the Kung Fu genius, I've come to the irrefutable medical conclusion that he must be using performance-enhancing drugs. Ooh. My guess would be that he's using class A horse steroids, most likely injected <laughs> into that disproportionately bulbous head of his. Ooh. Injecting cool. horse steroids into my bulbous head. Don't wow. you, aren't steroids normally injected like in the ass? Um, I thought they were into the balls. Oh, in the ball. I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was I'm speculating. The... Can you imagine injecting into your head? Where the hell would you even oh, inject it? Like just, all right, let's see. What, what else? Right, okay. All right, all right. So I'm taking performance enhancing or horse performance enhancing. The horsey drinks. sauce. All, all right. right. Okay. All Injecting right. it into my bulbous head. So, okay. And he adds, this would be the only explanation for why he looks like a thumb. Wow. A wow. thumb. Okay. A thumb. Built okay. like a thumb. Okay. Built like a thumb. Oh. All right. All right. All right. So I submit this before photo as proof no one with this measly of a build could suddenly grow to the kfg is epic dorito-like proportions dorito-like proportions <laughs> all right wow. damn wow so among my many medical certifications which we previously mentioned includes a master's degree from lorena bobbitt school of plastic surgery 
I've heard of I've heard there's I've heard good things about this school actually. What? Yeah, yeah. The Lareda yeah. Bobbitt School of Plastic yeah, Surgery. Yeah, yeah. Um I've heard some weird shit too. So. So, the question is, is um does that mean that he made the cut? <laughs> Woo! Wow. That's too uh, too soon. Come on. Too soon. All too right. soon. Or is he, is he needing an extension on his uh, dissertation? <laughs> Hall and Oates references and Lorena Bobbitt oh. references in the same episode. Mm. I think anyone younger than 30 is going to be to shutting this episode oh. off right away. Cuts like a knife. All right. <laughs> He's not done. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, he says, I submit this as undeniable proof of my expertise. I'm also of the opinion that the KFG is in danger to society, is a danger to society because I can read, and should be taken off YouTube immediately. Ooh, wow. Those are some pretty bold claims. Wow. Well, this Dr. Eisen guy. Yeah, you know what? Fired. You, you know what, Dr. Eisen? He's making me miss Dreisen. At least <laughs> Dreisen would just have some kind of salty hypothetical. Me getting sucked into a time machine, something like that, right? Yeah. It'd be kind of ridiculous. Most of the question would be a waste of time. Yeah, but he's a bit of a fan as well. Like, I mean, he a bit kind of, of a fan. Like, I mean, he right? still he's says hi to us. He's a 50-50-er, right? We, we give him grief, but he likes and us. And occasionally, he would actually ask a proper question. Occasionally. Oh, my God, all so right? occasionally. But this Dr. Eisen guy, yeah. he just seems angry. Because the last question he asked was also kind of salty, right? Has so, anybody tried to do a deep dive into his credentials or anything like that? I don't know, I mean, but I think we need to find out. But calling me thumb-like and Dorito-like, and I want to see this before photo, uh-huh. all right? Yeah. No, that we proves need that I'm yeah. taking horse steroids yeah, and yeah, injecting yeah, yeah. them into my bulbous head. Yeah. And also, how does he know about this? You, you know that I have a kind of obnoxiously large head for someone my height. It's... Careful. Choose your next words. <laughs> Carefully. Shaped well. 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 He's going to murder your face with his fist. I'm going to murder your face with my fist. Yeah, so I have like a, uh, I don't remember the size. It's like seven and seven eighths fitted hat size or something like that. It's ridiculous. I've I've, like, when I wear a fitted hat, I've met like really tall dudes. Uh And I'm like, here, wear my hat. And they put it on and it goes on them like this. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And I just go, oh, geez, it's embarrassing. So, because I'm 5'7", but I have like a huge head, which is why I spend so much time training my lats and my shoulders so that my head doesn't look so damn big proportionally to the rest of my body. So how does this guy know? I've done a pretty good job of masking my bulbous head size. I mean, he says he's a doctor. All right. I mean, whatever. 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 I have have reason to doubt that. (sighs) Yeah. All right. What else we got? All right. So this comes from Chris. Hi, KFG. Great episode. I know you use different types of bags. Steroids. Whoa. Hey, hey. (laughs) Is there an echo in here? Yeah. I know you use different types of bags and have done some boxing, but do you also drill with double-end bags for Wing Chun? Uh, I know Bruce Lee liked it based on the method books, but do you use it with your Wing Chun for evasion or stepping as opposed to boxing-style weaving? Mm. Oh, it's an interesting question. So... Uh, we do upstairs have a double-ended speed bag. So he's talking about those bags that are basically, it's like an inflated ball that's on a, mm-hmm. um, 
that's suspended by 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 two straps, one on the top and one on the bottom. And this is something usually used by boxers because mm -hmm. you it requires accuracy because when you hit it, it moves around. So if the straighter you hit it, the more it returns in a straight line. But if you throw things like hooks and uppercuts, it'll tend to, to kind of go all over the place. But then that also makes it like now an evasive target that you're trying to hit. So that's really good for boxers who are trying to hit like a moving target. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes boxers will use it like they'll hit it. And then when it comes back, they'll slip it and they'll use it to practice like um, head movement and evasion, which is not exactly the same thing that we do in Wing Chun. But I actually like the double ended speed bags uh, very early on in my Wing Chun training before I came to WT. Um, I, I practiced it in non-classical Wing Chun. We would actually train with a double-ended speed bag all the time because if you do Wing Chun chain punches on a double-ended speed bag and you don't punch it absolutely straight, that thing is going to start going side to side. So for Wing Chun practitioners who just want to improve, let's say, the, the straight angle of their punches, that's actually an excellent tool mm. um, because if you just punch it even slightly wonky slightly off that it's going to tell know. you right away yeah. right so it's it's got great feedback but it, i also think it's not a bad idea to hit that thing with a bunch of chain punches and then let it go and let it come to your head and move it to the side as if we were taking like for example a sidestep mm -hmm. with a side bump so you can still use that for evasion in wing chun even though we're not necessarily using like a boxing frame when we practice our wing chun um, but there's another type of double-ended speed bag which is the one that we have here at city wing chun which is called a mexican speed bag and it's basically shaped like a kidney bean like or mm -hmm. like a like a peanut yeah and that gives you two different levels that you can hit it on what i like about that one is the thin part it's like kind of like hitting someone in the neck. Uh -huh. And so it's a very narrow target. But same thing, if you hit it a little bit off, it's going to let you know. So I like that one because uh, you have the same immediate response feedback like when you hit a, a double-ended speed bag, but you have more options in terms of where and how you hit it. Mm. So uh, you can hit it right in the thin part, which is like akin to hitting someone in the neck, or the top part, which is like the head, or the bottom part, which is like the chest. You can do double punches on it because it's longer. So I actually like the Mexican double-ended speed bag for Wing Chun. I think that one is pretty good. Uh, I used to practice back in the day with a little rubber ball. And I know a lot of the Wong Sun Leung Wing Chun guys do that. Sometimes they put a tennis ball on two strings. Uh, but there used to be a company, uh, I forget I forget the name. Uh, they were out on the West Coast. Uh, all the West Coast martial art companies always had like the cool training equipment. And it was basically just like in a long elastic string with like uh, two hooks on the end mm -hmm. and it had a rubber ball and it was tied in a knot in the middle so the ball wouldn't slip up and down. And you just connect, you just found some place to put it in the top and in the bottom. And basically it was a double-ended speed bag, but it was a tiny rubber ball. Okay. And so that was really good for accuracy. Yeah. So when you tried to chain punch that thing, you had to be way more accurate than even on the conventional yeah, yeah. speed bag because now it's super, super small. Yeah. You're basically hitting something Surgical that's the size of a, of a tennis ball. So you, you have to hit that thing straight for it to come back. Those were like a lot of the things that I was really super into when I was a teenager. Uh -huh. And those things are really cool. It's weird because I've been doing Wing Chun for so long. Like a lot of the, I'm not going to say gimmicky stuff because obviously training with speed bags is something we still do. But like a lot of those kind of things that really like attract people like, oh, I'm going to do chain punches on this like little ball or I'm going to use this uh, rattan ring to do this thing or whatever. Like I'm going to sound like the old cynical old bastard. Mm -hmm. But like I did all that shit when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And like... I it I almost feel like I got it out of my system, mm -hmm. and 
sometimes people who are newer to Wing Chun, they're like, oh, wow, what, what do you think about this little rubber ball you can do chain punches with? And I'm like, probably haven't used that thing since I was 19 years old, right? Um, because I think it's one of those things when you get a feel for it, uh, when you get the rhythm with it, like even a regular a boxing speed bag, not the double-ended one, the ones that hang, yep. when you get like the hang of it and the rhythm of it, then it's just a matter of maintenance to keep that skill up. But after a while, unless you're really going for some tricks on the speed bag, you're not, you, you kind of like hit your wall on those things. And at some point you realize, okay, well, the application of Wing Chun against a partner is a little bit more important. Uh, the ability to just hit with raw power mm -hmm. is maybe a little bit more important than hitting this rubber ball repeatedly. Like that stuff is cool. It's challenging. It's good for your brain to give yourself these kind of challenges that require really good hand-eye coordination. And I'm a huge fan of doing that stuff. I do a lot of hand-eye coordination stuff that's not Wing Chun specific. The reason is because I did so much Wing Chun specific hand-eye coordination in all the years I've been practicing Wing Chun, like hitting those little things and, and all, all these different little, using rattan rings and doing all these like different little drills and stuff like that. Then once I got that, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to find other ways to improve my coordination. I don't need to just limit it to, to these Wing Chun skill-based things. So I'm at the point where I'm like, yeah, that stuff's super cool. Go ahead and try it, get good at it, and then do something else. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, none of those methods are like the equivalent of a mic drop where it's like, you know, if you just really want to be a banger in Wing Chun, um, just practice chain punching on this little tiny rubber ball and then you'll be able to defeat all your enemies and impress your friends. Yeah. Um, it, it, there tends to be an over-reliance on these gimmicky contraptions. Um, there's one now you see it sometimes on um, advertised on social media. I actually do want to try it. It's like a headband that you wear with like a, a it's got the elastic string coming out of a headband and it's got the rubber ball there and you punch it in front of your face. I thought you were like headbutt. No, no. Yeah, it's almost like the, those those uh, those paddles with the rub with the rubber ball where you yeah. go back and forth. But imagine that thing is on your head and you have to punch that thing and stand. I think that that's also something quite similar. I think the you know the first couple times you try that, you probably it's probably Feels like a weird. little bit difficult. Yeah. And then you get really really good at it. And then it's like just kind of some cool thing that you can impress your friends with. Mm -hmm. But the problem with martial arts related skill development or martial arts related strength training or coordination, or just say any kind of attribute you're trying to develop is it's always contextual. The thing you are training is the thing you are getting good at. And that might have crossover into other aspects but not nearly as much as you think. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you could have that headband thing with the hand-eye coordination and you're, you're jabbing that thing or Wing Chun chain punching that thing or inch punching that thing back and forth and you can keep that thing coming and returning back in a straight line and you go, this is improving my focus, my accuracy, my timing. But it's improving your focus, accuracy, timing in using that ball that's mm -hmm. attached to your head. Yeah. Okay? And yes, obviously you're making connections in your brain, which are improving your hand-eye coordination, which is something you need for fighting and martial arts and just being healthy in general. But I think that the crossover effect 
of, smaller of than... is a lot smaller than people think it is. Because, uh, again, the difference is when you have someone in front of you, whether you're doing chisao or you're doing sparring or someone is trying to punch you, now you're suddenly under a little bit of stress and now you have to hit a moving target with arms and legs that are coming at you and pushing and trying to grab you and hold you. And that is a very different feel than just kind of clacking mm -hmm. away at some rubber ball that's attached to your head. So I am all for it. And so I'm not saying that as any kind of hater on like cool, fun training methods. I mean, you, you've watched me train. I like doing fun stuff and oh, yeah. training with maces and doing all sorts of crazy things, right? I'm all for that. And I can say that because it's my job. I train every day. But I'm just saying like for people who have a normal job, they work eight hours a day, they go to Wing Chun class twice a week. The last thing you really need to worry about is like buying this gimmicky ball that you can hit forward and backwards, right? If you want to buy it, fine. I mean, if it, if it brings you joy, if it's in a Mary Kondo way, sparks joy, all right, by all means do it, okay? Um, but I'm just saying like if you have a limited amount of time in terms of how much training you can do outside of your regular class, if you can even train outside of your regular class at all, I wouldn't prioritize like those things because those are things, uh, those are polishes for the person who's training a lot. Gotcha. If you don't train that much, I would make your extracurricular training way more meat and potatoes, mm -hmm. way more plain Jane. Mm -hmm. Hit a wall bag, hit a heavy bag, do footwork, do steps training, do some coordination with hands and feet and stuff like that. And if you can do that in addition to your regular Wing Chun training, you're more than golden. But if you have way more time to dedicate to your Wing Chun training, okay, now let's expand it to some other things that are a little more esoteric in terms of their overall application. Um, and, and I think that sometimes people are looking at things that might give an expert a 0.5% improvement, mm -hmm. but it looks really cool thinking that that's the thing that's going to make them an expert. Whereas these are like, uh, you know, when you look at half of the training that high level athletes do, like all the sexy, cool contraptions they use. Yeah, because they are tapped out in terms of um, uh, getting improvement from all the standard methods because they do all the basic shit day in and day out. They have they have squeezed that lemon dry because they do so much of it. Mm -hmm. They need little hacks to just push it to the next level. But those hacks are not the things that the person that doesn't have enough time to just train regularly really needs. Yeah. And they're confusing watching the expert using these cool little gimmicky training things because mm -hmm. they're at a very high level and thinking that's the reason why they're at the high level. No, that's what they need to do to give their brain novelty because yeah. they have so many reps of the standard, whatever it is that they're practicing. And so I think Wing Chun people or martial artists in general need to do a way more standard meat and potatoes training and not worry too much about like the sexy stuff mm -hmm. that they think is going to make them better because it's not. Um, and although a speed bag is a pretty normal thing, but I'm just saying in general, um, I think Kung Fu people need to stop relying on gimmicky bullshit and just hit a bag, grab a partner, do some sparring, do some normal training, you know, do some push-ups, lift some basic mm -hmm. weights. It doesn't have to do anything crazy. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right, what else we got? We got time for me for one more? I think so. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> this one, uh, which happens to be the last one anyway. All right, perfect. All right, this one comes from uh, Mr. Andrew Lin. Andrew Lin. Oh, yeah. That name's familiar. Yeah. yeah, rings a bell. Yeah. When I briefly trained Hungar as a kid, training the horse stance was heavily emphasized. It was brutal trying to sit in that stance for a long period of time. 
I know we have that deep horse stance with the long pull, but do you think there's value in WT practitioners training it before learning the pull? Wow, that's a really, really good question. Um, Uh Oddly enough, all the best questions come from our editor. Um, (laughs) Which is funny because, like, he he just, he actually, Andrew, who edits our podcast, he just writes those questions in the comments like everyone else. It's not like he, like, fast tracks that to us, like, hey, I'm editing your show. Can you get these in there? He just puts them in there. But yeah, he yeah. always asks really good questions. Maybe because he's bored shitless of half the questions we get on the podcast. <laughs> and he's like, oh, let me put something better there. Uh, so, yeah, in, in Hongka or Hongkun, which is a very traditional Orthodox Southern Chinese martial art, they do a lot of horse stance training. Now, depending on who you ask, all right, and again, I'm not a Hongkun practitioner, all right, so if there are any people who are Hongkun practitioners out there, uh, I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes or make any kind of claims about what's what. I just I know a few different Hongkun practitioners from different lines, mm-hmm. and a lot of them say very similar things, but some of them have a slightly different take on the same stuff. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, the the one take is that because Hongkun forms use a lot of horse stance, and the horse stance is almost like a very standard type of stance that has brought like if you're if you have a good horse stance, then a lot of your other stances are going to be very strong as well mm-hmm. because those stances tend to be less strenuous than the horse stance, um, with some exceptions. Like stances where your weight is fully on the back leg can be more strenuous than a horse stance. But for the most part, if you have a good horse, all right, as mm-hmm. they say in Chinese, um, then the other stances kind of flow from that. Yeah. The horse, the standard horse being a mother, the, the mother stance, right? Now, it's actually funny. It's actually a bit of, um, uh, it, it's a bit, it's not correct to actually call it a horse stance because the Chinese word for stance is horse. Okay. It's like saying DC comics. DC stands for detective comics. Uh So you're saying detective comics, comics Comics, when you say DC comics, right? Uh, So saying horse stance is a bit of an oxymoron because the Chinese word for, for stance is horse. They just call it ma. Ma means horse. How, how good is your ma, right? How good is your horse? Because the original stance is the position you're in when you're riding a horse, all right? So that's where it comes from. Okay. So you have your legs in that position, and you clamp the horse, and that's how you ride. That's your horse. Uh, and then you just stand that same way on the ground. So um, in Hongkun, you know, one school of thought is, okay, you have to spend a lot of time training your horse stance, your horse first, yeah. because that stance has broad application to everything else you're doing. All right. So if you have a good horse stance, you're going to have a good bow and arrow stance. You're going to have all these other stances that are going to be there. And there's another component in that it builds discipline. Mm -hmm. Remember that the traditional Chinese sifus didn't have big schools and they were very selective about the students that they taught. So to a certain degree, making a new student spend a lot of time in this very painful, very strenuous stance was a way to weed out the people who are not very serious. Mm-hmm. You knew that after six months or a year of making a student do basics out of a horse stance or maybe just do the horse stance, if that dude was still around after six months or a year, that person was dedicated and loyal, and then you can start to teach them all the other forms uh, because, one, you know they're dedicated, you know they're loyal, and, two, they've been doing that stance for a year, they're strong, mm-hmm. and they have mental fortitude. So it's uh, the Chinese say... Um, Sikfu, which means to eat bitter. And that means to uh, to be able to put yourself through a strenuous process, right? Either imposed from the outside or self-imposed. You are able to eat bitter, which is which means that you can you can go through some hard times 
for future gain. Mm-hmm. All right. So it means you're able to delay gratification by doing the hard work now. And that is a classic example of that. Uh, so there's one school of thought is that, okay, you need the horse stance to be good at Honggun. To the horse stance is kind of like a shit test to see if the student is loyal. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there are many people that believe in both of them. All right. But the horse stance has m- more application than just, okay, you're a strong dude if you can stay in a horse stance for a long time. The hip mobility and ankle um, mobility to be able to keep your feet flat and the proper horse stance, which many Wing Chun people cannot do. We we have that horse stance for our long pole. Mm -hmm. When you look at many Wing Chun people do the pole stance, they have their feet with the toes out. All right. If you if a Hong Kun Sifu saw you do, you'd be like, yeah, we have the horse stance in Wing Chun, too. We have it in our long pole. And then you watch like a Wing Chun guy in the horse stance with the feet splayed out like this. Mm -hmm. You would literally get laughed at by any Hongkun Sifu mm-hmm. because the feet need to be parallel. parallel yeah. All right. Now, in order to keep your feet at that distance parallel with your knees up in a straight line in a nice horse stance does not just require thigh strength. Okay. Yeah. Or core strength to stay upright. It actually requires very good hip, ankle and knee mobility and strength and stabilization. So it's a sign of someone who actually has good hip movement and ankle flexibility to actually even stay in a horse stance for a while. A lot of the pain that people feel when they're in the horse stance, it's not just your quads burning. It's because their ankles actually cannot stay in that position for too long. Their hips cannot stay in that position mm-hmm. for too long. So um, I would I would argue that the horse stance is a lot more than just a leg strengthener. It's also a... a uh, a barometer for hip mobility and all of these other things. So that also helps to pave the way for good Hongkun later or so on and so forth. Having said that, I actually think it would be good for Wing Chun people to train that. We have an upright stance in Wing Chun because we favor mobility over having a super strong, stable stance. Right? Wing Chun is not the style, even though many internal Wing Chun people now are trying to add these ideas in there where I'm going to root my stance and you cannot push me over, okay? Mm-hmm. If I if I grab one of my buddies from jiu-jitsu or I just grab someone who's 50 pounds heavier than you and he starts rushing you, okay, you're going to move, all right? this These guys who are really good at rooting and putting stuff into the floor, you can do it when the parameters of the exercise are such that we have a gentleman's agreement that we're going to, I'm going to stand here, you're going to stand there, you can push my arms this way and then within the walled garden of these parameters deviate from it. I can I can you know I can absorb and push or whatever yeah. but the moment that person doesn't care anything about the parameters of your exercise and is going to bum rush you uh-huh. or punch you or kick you or kick you in the leg or fake a kick the leg punch you in the face and then just goon you with their arms then suddenly the idea of standing in one place and rooting the piss out of my stance doesn't really make much sense all right if you practice a, even just do no gi jujitsu with someone who's a good jujitsu guy and they're coming at you and grabbing you and you're moving around, you very quickly see the value of being able to move and be mobile. Mm-hmm. And Wing Chun, even according to Grandmaster Yip Man's interview, and this is so weird that so many people in Wing Chun have fetishized standing in one place. Grandmaster Yip Man in his second interview with New Martial Hero talks about Wing Chun's stances are flexible and mobile. You need to use movement and mobility to fight a bigger, stronger opponent. says nothing about you need to root your stance into the floor, bro, and don't move while someone tries to run you over. If a train comes at you, just root more, all right? No, how about you move out of the way, okay? Um, And if you put boxing gloves on any of these guys, 
who do this stuff and you just you grab someone to start coming and swinging at the like swinging for the fences they're gonna move yeah. they're not gonna stand there yeah. all right so I, I I'm very um, worried about this weird trend in Wing Chun right now to get away from like moving out of the way of someone's fist who's trying to murder your face and now just standing there and reducing Wing Chun to s- dissolving pushes and pulls in place I go, that's a great skill, and that's one part of it, but it needs to be done cohesively with the rest of it, right? So um, having said that, I think Wing Chun people should still practice the horse stance, even though we have a higher stance, which is for mobility, mm-hmm. because of you know the aforementioned advantages of you know hip mobility flexibility and all that kind of stuff and i also think that you know although the wing chun stance is a little tough for beginners because uh-huh. you have to hold it yeah yeah um but i think if they also had to do some horse stance training in there as well that would make the wing chun frontal stance easier by comparison so i actually think it's not a bad I idea i could see that yeah and that's all i gotta say about that All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius. Hit that bell for notifications and comment below any questions you want me to answer on a future episode. And as always, I'll see you guys next time. Word is I'm a Kung Fu genius Technique speaks for me, not lineage Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seagung And I produce masters, you surpassed us Your Kung Fu stiffer than corpse and caskets City Wing Chun is the house I built Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt Alex Richter, always the victor We talked about a plastic surgery school that was a cut above the rest <laughs> Ready? Son of a bitch, don't fuck me. <laughs> All right, let's see what we got. Technology. Wow, here we go. Yep. Talk about dead air. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got old Dre's back. Yeah, old Dre. Yeah. It's <laughs> definitely old Dre here. So your glasses are slipping down your nose at this point. Go on, say. Coronavirus. All right. Coronavirus. You can edit that out, Andrew. All right, no, so. Don't edit that out. Shut up. <laughs> Since when do you have a say on what gets edited out here? All right. Oh, more than you could possibly imagine. Wow. Wow.